Hello, and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Ames. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at the history of Black History Month. Stay tuned. Okay, so a lot of people know this month is Black History Month, but have you ever wondered why February? What's special about this month? Besides, obviously, my birthday falls in February. I'm just kidding, but that's one thing. Uh, No, but I figured that I would do an episode about Black History Month, and I actually got the idea from my friend Colleen because we were talking a couple weeks ago about why February and, and what's the significance of February and Black History So I decided to dig a little deeper and do some research. Uh, In this episode, I'm going to talk a lot about the history and the origins, and I'm also going to look at some figures, African-American figures, that I feel really contributed to history and society, but maybe did not get the recognition that they deserved because they did not appear in history books and uh, are not commonly known or commonly talked about. So to begin with, Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African-Americans, and it's really a time for recognizing their central role in U.S. history. It's, I guess, officially known as African-American History Month, and the event actually grew out of Negro History Week. That was a brainchild of noted historian Carter G. Woodson and a couple other prominent African-Americans. And interestingly enough, since 1976, every single U.S. president has officially designated the month of February as Black History Month. And interesting enough, too, other countries around the world, including Canada and the U.K., also devote a month to celebrating Black history. And it really all started back in 1915, about half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the U.S., That September, Carter D. Woodson, as I mentioned, he was a Harvard-trained historian. He, along with a minister, prominent minister at that time, Jesse Moreland, founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, ASNLH. It was an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans and other people of African descent. So the group sponsored a National Negro History Week in 1926, and they chose the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. The event inspired a lot of schools and communities nationwide to organize local celebrations, they established history clubs, they had performances and lectures. And Woodson also said that he chose February for reasons of tradition and reform. It it was commonly said that he he picked February to kind of encompass, as I mentioned, the birthdays of of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, whose whose birthdays fall on the 12th and the 14th, uh, respectively, of, of this month. But more importantly, he chose them for reasons of tradition. Uh, Since Lincoln's assassination in 1865, the black community had been celebrating his birthday. And since the late 1890s, black communities across the U.S. had also celebrated Douglas's birthday as well. So he was really aware of these pre-existing celebrations. And so Woodson built Negro History Week around those traditional days to kind of commemorate the black past. And he was really asking the public to extend their study of black history, not necessarily to create a new tradition. He just wanted to raise awareness and have a conversation. So 
he envisioned envisioned the study and the celebration of black people, not simply looking at a couple great men, you know, because we know Lincoln, however great that he he may have been, we know that he didn't free the slaves. Really, essentially, the Union Army, which, of course, included hundreds of thousands of black soldiers and sailors, had pretty much were responsible, right, for freeing the slaves. And so instead of just focusing on two men, he felt like the black community should really focus on countless black men and women who had really contributed to the advancement of human civilization. And the the really great part of it is that at the beginning, really Woodson was overwhelmed by, by the response to his call. And Negro History Week appeared across the country, as I said, in schools, it was all over the public. And in the 1920s, uh, with the decade of the new Negro, that was the name given to the post war generation, post-World War One generation, it really became a time for racial pride and consciousness. And a lot of it was really, you know, celebrating the fact that there was an expanding black middle class, that uh, there's a lot of black literature and culture, black history clubs popped up, teachers started teaching more about uh, the, the contributions of black people in the U.S., so it was really a big time, and Woodson and, and the association scrambled to meet the demands. They set up themes for the celebrations. They produced study materials, pictures, lessons, etc. And it was really quite an important, important thing. The association formed branches, actually, as well, that stretched from, from coast to coast. And in 1937... Woodson established the Negro History Bulletin, which focused on the annual themes of of Negro History Week. And as the black populations grew, mayors actually issued Negro History Week proclamations. And in cities like Syracuse, for example, a lot of progressive white people also joined in the celebration. So it was a really, really exciting time. And well before his death in 1950, Woodson believed that these weekly celebrations Rather, it wasn't, again, just a study or celebration of black history. He he thought it was something that could continue on past just that week. So he really actually pressed for schools to use Negro History Week to demonstrate what students learned all year and to kind of incorporate that knowledge throughout the year. So his idea was really just to to help people learn about black history and have it be an ongoing conversation past that one week. And he actually was initially the one that spoke about a shift from Negro History Week to what he called Negro History Year to really, again, incorporate everything that that students learned into a year-long study. So by the late 1960s, thanks in part to the civil rights movement and, of course, growing awareness of black identity, Negro History Week did evolve into Black History Month on many college campuses. And President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month in 1976, and he really called upon the public to seize the opportunity to honor the often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every single area of history. So as I said, since that time, since 1976, Every American president has designated designated February as Black History Month and endorsed a specific theme. So fun fact, this year's theme was Black Family, uh, Representation, Identity, and Diversity. 
and it was about ex- exploring the African diaspora and the spread of black families across the United States. I wanted to spend part of this episode talking about the black people who made history and some of the people who don't appear in history books. And we're talking about educators, inventors, politicians, actors, you name it. I think black people have really been instrumental in building America and influencing the world, but they don't always get the shout out and the attention that they they deserve. So I'm going to look at five that I feel are really important. Of course, there's more than five, but I wanted to start somewhere. So the first one is Barbara Jordan. She was an educator and politician who went on to become the first black woman to be elected to the Texas State Senate. She was also the first Southern black woman elected to the US House of Representatives. And she's best known for her opening statement against Richard Nixon's 1974 impeachment hearings. And her speech really helped lead to Nixon's resignation over, of course, the Watergate scandal. And that really won Jordan national attention. Uh, Two years later, she was actually asked to deliver the keynote address at the 1976 Democratic Convention. And she is the first black woman actually to deliver uh, such an address at, at a national convention. So she went on to have a really long career in politics. And as I said, was really influential and and very important when it came to Uh, a lot of those issues in the 70s and also really pressing for education reform as well. Okay, number four is a scientist who's an expert on the front lines of the global race for the the COVID vaccine, and her name is Dr. Kismikia Corbett. So Corbett was born and raised in North Carolina, and she was actually selected to participate in a program for gifted minority students called Project Seed. And this gave her the opportunity to study chemistry in labs at the University of North Carolina. And according to what I read in the Washington Post, she ended up landing a full ride to the University of Maryland. And in 2014, she joined the National Institutes of Health's Vaccine Research Center as a postdoctoral fellow. And at just 35 years of age, she's actually considered one of the key players in developing the science that could end the COVID pandemic because she's part of a team at the NIH that worked with Moderna, the of course, the company that developed one of the two vaccines. So she is really, really, as I said, influential uh, when it comes to science. And obviously, in this day and age, uh, the COVID is, is kind of the hot topic. So uh, it's really great to know um, that a lot of Black women, particularly Black scientists, are are making a difference. And a lot of these programs, too, I think that highlights the importance of, of some of these programs that uh, really give these gifted minority students an opportunity to, to succeed. Okay, number three is Willa Beatrice Brown. So while opportunities a lot of times right, for Black women uh, were often few and far between back in the day, um, Brown was really, really interesting. She set her ambitions on learning how to fly, and she became the first Black woman to acquire a pilot's license in 1938. So Brown and her husband, uh, they actually went on to open their own flight school that aimed to train Black men to become pilots. And over time, the school was was integrated. Uh, But as I said, opportunities for black women were really few and far between. So 
she wanted to to learn how to fly and she wanted to to make a difference and uh she as i said along with her husband they they worked hard on creating a flight school and it was really a great opportunity for a lot of african americans at that time to to be able to learn because not all schools of course were open to to black people uh during the 30s and and 40s okay next person i want to highlight is frederick bruce thomas He was a businessman who actually made a fortune in pre-revolutionary Russia. And this is a really interesting story. I think that a lot of people maybe haven't read up on him. But he was born in 1872. He was a former slave. Uh, Well, he was, rather, I should say he was born to former slaves in Mississippi. And he ended up moving to Russia and becoming a businessman. So in Russia, he owned and operated several successful theaters and restaurants. Um, But despite his success, he was actually forced to flee to Istanbul due to the Russian Revolution. And while skin color was not really of any concern to the Ottoman Empire, he still faced a lot of racial prejudice from diplomats actually in the American Consulate General in Istanbul, uh, as well as the State Department. So he was able to actually find uh, fortune again. He ended up opening several nightclubs when he was over in Turkey, but they were not recognized. He was not recognized as American. And so he actually didn't receive any legal protection. So he faced a lot of discrimination uh, and he actually ended up dying in jail in 1928 um, because they they claimed that he owed a lot of debt. So I think the story itself was really interesting to go from uh, growing up in a poor family in Mississippi to becoming a successful business person in Russia. So that's one person I wanted to to highlight. Okay, my last one is uh, Jennifer King, who actually made history as the first black woman to be named a full-time NFL coach. She was an All-American quarterback, actually a wide receiver for the Women's Football Alliance uh, in Carolina. And she made her NFL debut as as a coaching intern for the Carolina Panthers in 2018. And then um, in 2020, she joined the Washington football team as a coaching intern. And then actually after working as an intern for a year, she was promoted to assistant running backs coach uh, earlier in this, this year. So Obvious that's probably one of my dream jobs. I would love to be an uh, an NFL coach. Uh, But no, it's great because obviously that's a field where, of course, you can say, yes, there's a lot of black people in sports and particularly the NFL. But uh, as a black female coach is definitely not something that you you see. Same with referees. So it's great to see that she's she's getting an opportunity to, to be successful. And I do actually have a runner up because... It's really hard to pick only five. So my runner-up is the first black infantry regiment to fight in World War One, and they that would be the Harlem Hellfighters. So the the Harlem Hellfighters they began combat training in South Carolina, uh, but they were really under Jim Crow laws because this was October nineteen seventeen. It was six months after the U.S. entered the war. And they were originally appointed to the U.S. Army's Services of Supply, which was part of the American forces in Europe. Um, But they actually got sent to the French Army as a result of a lot of white American soldiers basically flat out refusing to work with black people. 
So this regiment ended up serving 191 days under enemy fire in Europe, which is the most time spent in combat over any other American unit at that time. So although they, they of course, they returned home from the war, they faced a lot of racism and segregation from from fellow Americans. Uh, they did actually have a parade for them along Fifth Avenue in, in New York City that really commemorated their return to the States. And they were among the most highly decorated regiment actually of, of that time. So as I said, obviously there are many more stories. There's many more people. I wish I could share all of them. Uh, there's a lot of great uh, African-Americans who have contributed a lot to history. Uh, so uh, there, this is obviously an ongoing conversation, but uh, really, again, this is just a highlight and sort of start the conversation and, uh, of course, encourage people to to do some reading, do some research and learn about more uh, great African-American achievements. Okay, it's that time of the episode. It's time for Ask a Black Friend. Okay, so every February, this question always comes up. And it's true that even a couple years ago, or maybe it was more than a couple years ago, uh, Morgan Freeman himself even uh, sort of addressed this question, which is why do we still have Black History Month? And do we still need Black History Month? And there are people like Freeman that basically argue, no, it's not. It's not necessary. It's something that we really don't need to have. But I have to disagree, respectfully disagree, because I think that Black History Month, really, in theory, we shouldn't need it, right? Because Black History Month should be every single month. It's the same with Women's History Month, right? Next month, we have Women's History Month. And that's something that should be every month. We should be able to talk about and highlight the successes of women or of black people or Native Americans or or really any group. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not always the case. And unfortunately, a lot of people get left out in history. And I think until we're able to address that, I think that we do still need Black History Month. I think there is hopefully, hopefully at some point in time, we're not going to need it. That hopefully, you know, black stories or uh, women's stories or trans stories or gay stories or what I hopefully all of that will be able to be incorporated in history books. They'll be able to be to be talked about on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, that would be obviously the best the best outcome. But I think until we have that, until there's still a lot of, uh, in, until we're able to remedy the situation, until people are able to have conversations about race, until we're, you know, going to be able to actually identify a lot of black people or people of color uh, that have contributed to history, then I think you do still need Black History Month. You know, I would love to open up a history book and read about uh, people that, you know, maybe we don't know or people that we aren't familiar with. But, you know, that's not usually the case. You open a history book and it's a U.S. history book and you hear about the same old, same old people, right? You hear about Washington, you hear about Lincoln, you hear about just common, you know, everyday quote unquote heroes. And so I think until we're able to open a history book and see 
diversity until we can read about Native Americans, as I said, people of color, black people, uh, important women. Until we get to that point, I think we do do still need Black History Month. But of course, in an ideal world, we would be talking about mm, contributions uh, that that people of color have made to the U.S. and to the world uh, on a daily or weekly basis. So to finish out this episode, I wanted to read a quote from the great Cicely Tyson, who unfortunately passed away earlier this month. She was a great actress. And she said, challenges make you discover things about yourself that you never really knew. And I think this is a great quote because obviously, regardless of your race or beliefs or anything, we all face challenges and it's really about learning from them and using them as an opportunity to grow. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Happy Black History Month, and I hope to see you all next time.